Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. It's me, Anna, editing this episode. And I wanted to correct a mistake that occurs within the episode. This is the recording from the live show that we had on October 16th. And we're so glad everyone came out. But I made a goof about the brain. I said the cerebellum was at the front of the brain. It's actually at the back. What I was thinking of was the cerebrum. Silly me. Anyway, on with the show. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And these are our faces because we, ah! are, we are live from our respective recording rooms. So um, those of you who are here with us on Zoom today know this, but those of you in the future who are listening, um, you're listening to a live show in conjunction with the Archaeological Institute of America's International Archaeology Day. And we are so glad you could all join us. And before you think that like we were absolutely bombing in our live show, everyone else is muted. So that's why you can't hear the laughter. <laughs> you can't hear the wild applause and raucous <laughs> laughter. Hoo, 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 hoo. That's my mom in the back. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Bob. And we are so happy to be here doing this. Um, Quick shout out to all of our supporters on Patreon who keep this show going. If you like what we do and you want to support us with a couple dollars a month and get a monthly newsletter and bonus episodes, you can head over to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and check us out there or don't. Either way, we love you. No, we do. It's cool. Um, So our patrons already know this. Well, they know that it's Thanks not coming out newsletter. in October. Yeah. Thanks to the yeah. newsletter. So this is going to come out on our main feed in November. But as of today, International Archaeology Day, we are still firmly in Spooktober. And so this episode definitely does have some uncanny vibes because we are here to talk about ritual and ritual objects in the past. Yeah. So it's a classic archaeology joke that when you find something at a site and have no idea what its function or meaning is, You call it a ritual object, often with heavy quotes around that. But what is a ritual object, really? And can we actually divorce ritual or non-utilitarian meaning from function? If an object or even a place wasn't for everyday use, was it necessarily sacred in some way or in some way important to the people who made it? So we'll tell you right off the bat, we do not have answers. What we have are the theoretical underpinnings that explore how we can get at something like ritual, which is utterly based in cultural and experiential backgrounds that we as archaeologists just might not be able to access. Yeah. And so once we've finished doing one of my favorite activities, which is thinking about thinking, uh, we're going to talk about two very different case studies to illustrate how that theory, those theories, is are a lens into past belief and behavior. Thank so, goodness you got that grammar correct. <laughs> so before we go looking for ritual behaviors and the material evidence thereof, let's figure out what ritual is in the first place. So we're going to do a little silent thought. Well, I won't be silent, but you will. Uh, ex- thought exercise. And so what do you think of the mind? (laughs) What do you think of when I say ritual? So in my non-archaeology brain, I think of two distinct categories. I think of like chic minimalist lady blogs sharing what they do to keep the Sunday scaries away and prepare for the week. Um, And I also imagine like a cabal of cultists chanting in some like dead language as they prepare to sacrifice something real or symbolic. So Maybe you're thinking of something similar, either end of that spectrum. But chances are what you're thinking of is a set of actions that are intentional, prescribed, and foreign to you, but meaningful to the people doing them. Foreign stuff like being prepared for the week, like arcane. What's that like? (laughs) um, But in terms of social theory, ritual is something else, something bigger, yet invisible, 
get everything. But we've only got an hour. So uh, I'm very extremely sensitive about people looking bored when I talk. So I'm going to attempt something very difficult and make something extremely complicated. One could argue unnecessarily so. A bit more accessible. (laughs) So let's start our exploration of the theory informing ritual, capital R ritual, with Emil Durkheim, the progenitor of the field of sociology and one of the big three who made social sciences a thing. Um, For those of you keeping count at home, the other two were Karl Marx and Max Weber. So in 1912, Durkheim published The Elementary Forms of Religious Life, which sought to identify the origin and function of religion and society. So we're talking capital S society, not 20th century French society that he lived in, as well as what qualities are common across all religions and thus would point us toward an empirical truth of of what religion does, like what it does for us as humans. So in the elementary forms of religious life, Durkheim focused on the sacred constituted by the emotional responses humans have to spectacle. So these are responses like awe, devotion, or respect. To him, the material objects associated with the sacred, like the flag on a pole that people salute, or the headstone on a grave, or the crucifix on the wall, all of these are important because they serve as the thing that groups can focus on to cultivate and amplify that sense of the sacred. So I'm going to read now from a Guardian article that kind of sums up what Durkheim was getting at really better than I could, and I tried. So, quote, In the elementary forms, Durkheim understands these sacred actions as rituals, differentiating between positive rites, celebrating or venerating a sacred object, and negative rites, protecting a sacred object from impurity. The numerous examples he gives of these follow a common structure. A select group of people goes to a special place to perform a defined set of actions in relation to a sacred object. The collective experience generated by such rituals is so powerful that it gives the participants a profound sense of connectedness to each other and a deep moral vitality that transforms the way in which they feel about themselves and their world. Beliefs, meanings, and worldviews completely intertwine with the objects and spaces people live in. We who are studying the past must envision possible contingent cultural and spiritual worlds in order to understand anything about past groups. The materiality of ritual and the sacred include a wide range of things. Sacred offerings, ceremonial trash, special paraphernalia, bounded or unbounded spirit ceremonial spaces, access and movements, everyday objects in new settings or combinations, an abundance of things like feasting, dancing, and song. And they finish up by saying strategic rituals can be made more important by incorporating familiar and traditional ritual beliefs and practice into more elaborate ritual forms. In this way, strategic rituals can play a core part in retaining and increasing social power, end quote. So this brings us to another point about ritual and the archaeologist's relationship to it. It's not just about the sacred. Over time, the body of theory tasked with figuring out ritual began to see it less about understanding religions and more about understanding societies. It extends beyond what we see as sacred, both in terms of the kind of faith-based higher power sort of sacred and the like don't murder children morality kind of sacred, and works itself into how we move through the world and understand the basics of leading occasionally boring lives even. Because of this, Thoughts around ritual as an analytical tool developed embedded within the rest of archaeology as it developed. So, again, we have a cake metaphor, and this one I'm I'm quite proud of. So it's sort of like when you're making a chiffon cake, and you have to whip the egg whites to make the cake light before you fold everything together and then bake it. The cake that comes out of the oven is archaeology, and folded inside of that cake is the air you whipped into it to make it light. For the sake of our metaphor, the air is ritual theory. You might say, no, this is cake, it's not air, but you'd be wrong. It's all folded in together, and you don't think about the air that you folded in the cake that makes it actually a chiffon cake and not like a weird brownie, because you're too focused on the sugar and the eggs and the funfetti sprinkles on top. So does that does that work, Anna? It's valid. I'll allow it. <laughs> So it I just, would like cake, and I do not have cake. That is the only criticism. It just came up 
with the development of archaeology. It wasn't sort of teased out separately because that was seen as something else and something irrelevant. So 80 years and many other theorists after Durkheim's elementary forms, religious studies scholar Catherine Bell, not the lady that was on JAG, different Catherine okay. Bell. <laughs> I don't know. Noted. People Thank watch you. TV in the 90s. So Catherine Bell released a seminal work, which I've linked in the show notes, named Ritual Theory, Ritual Practice. Gradually, Bell's work and that of others who followed began to be engaged with more, well, sorry, began to be engaged with more. There we go. I wrote that sentence. And thinking about ritual gained attention beyond people who just do religion. Like, do you mean study religion or, or practice? I Like religious studies scholars. Religious scholars. Okay. okay. So like where religion is their thing. It's like, well, I don't do religion. I do ceramics. And it's like, well, maybe ritual, pra- maybe ritual theory is irrelevant to you. I don't know. So as British archaeologist Timothy Ensel put it back, put it back in his 2009 introduction to a volume named Materiality, Belief, Ritual, Archaeology and Material Religion. I think this was a special issue of the journal Material Religion. (laughs) But did it have to do with material and also religion? Yeah, yeah. Wow. he, He said, quote, also, this wasn't the first issue of that. This was like a full on journal. Imagine. <laughs> so often archaeological consideration of ritual and religions remains underlain by assumption that labels and definitions derived from other disciplines, anthropology or religious studies, for example, are right and thus applicable to different contexts, perhaps far removed geographically and temporally. Whilst material culture might be treated as just there instead of being interrogated as to how it symbolizes, represents, misleads, and informs the archaeologist attempting to explore the subtleties of ritual practice and religion, end quote. And here, friends, is a place where I would like for us to hang out for just a second, where we consider materiality. It's a concept that gets a bit heady at times, depending on who's writing it, uh, but it really, really honestly doesn't have to be. Seriously. So at the heart of it, (laughs) and so this is like, I have something that I put in the script for Anna to read that I am not going to read to everyone, but it's sort of like, Thus, the heading of it is what is materiality? And like the author is like, how could you possibly ask me to answer that in this, my own introduction to this volume about materiality that I wrote the heading to? So, but at the heart of it, (laughs) who hurt you, sir? Despite all that, materiality tries to get us to consider the objects around us, including the objects we encounter in the archaeological record, as more than just self-evident, tangible data points. They're not just things like in a like we're not just in a soundstage, which is like things existing in it. So. That's 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 what it is at the heart of it. So this quickly spirals into consideration of the thingness of things and the agency of objects, which is which is all genuinely valuable, but it might scare some of you off. So I'm just going to rein it in a little bit. Um, And I want to plant in your minds today a small idea, which I hope you'll let rattle around and make you think when you're sitting in your meetings or walking down the sidewalk. And that is the idea of the theory of practice. So this is something that I never thought that I would be telling other people about and be like, no, get into it when I first learned about it. (laughs) So practice theory was gifted to the world by Pierre Bourdieu. And it's always had a special place in my heart because reading Bourdieu taught me how to read theory. So I remember having the book open, taking notes in the margins and my notebook. And I had Google open in one window to look up all the words I didn't know and Wikipedia in another window to break down each chapter into comprehensible terms. Like I had to do all of that to like get through the reading just to go to class and sort of talk it through with everyone else. And then I like understood it and I was like, Oh, that's how this works. So that whole process taught me that good ideas aren't always articulated in the most efficient manner, especially if they are articulated in translation, uh, which was, I was reading Bourdieu in English. Um, And also the authors. (laughs) And was he French? Yes. Um, and also the authors aren't necessarily going to meet you halfway when it comes to understanding their work. And that's something that like this is one of those lessons that 
like people need impressed upon them. Just like the, you don't have to read the whole article, like read, like read the introduction and the conclusions. And then like, if you need to like read more deeply, like that's how you actually make it through all the reading you're supposed to do. Something else is like, there is no shame in using multiple sources to understand a single text because it, that, that, that it says as much about them as it does about you. Uh, so for possibly more from Bourdieu and his successors, we can view ourselves not as the origin point of reality, which starts with our consciousness and ends with us exerting it on the world around us, which might be how some of us sort of implicitly view how we move through the world. Um, but actually, a, a court, if we are to subscribe to the theory of practice, we are the end product of our external environment habituating us and conditioning us into behaving in ways that we come to believe are understood or go without saying. So it's all implicit. We don't consciously notice it's happening. So the world around us, including all the things in it, nudge us along quietly as we figure out the way things are in our social group. That way things are is what Bourdieu called habitus. And, in, and so that's habituating and it includes it includes all the beliefs, dispositions and norms that are shared by a group. Habitus is formed through praxis, which is the repetition of acts that result in things being internalized or made real to an individual or a group. So that's where the name theory of practice comes from. So habitus gives rise to doxa and doxa are deeply internalized, non-negotiable aspects of the fabric of one's reality, a group's reality. So things like a day contains 24 hours. The sun rises in the east. Chairs go on the floor and are for sitting. Like those are things that are fully internalized and just taken for granted. In order for us to move through the world and have relationships with other humans and like do math and stuff, we need to take stuff for granted to like free up space in our brains. So this that's yeah, otherwise sort of, there's just no processor space. That's yeah, that's what society is 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 doing. Like sort of getting all those things just internalized. Our world is interpreted by our brains and by the doxa of our groups. For our purposes as human beings, especially as human beings that think about other human beings, it's important for us to remember that there's no such thing as something just being. There's no just is. Because we establish and maintain relationships with the world around us, and those relationships are a two-way street. So all of those relationships are the realm of ritual because it's all being nudged and nudging. So did I explain that okay, Anna? Yeah, it's all kind of a, a dual kind of stimulus response kind of mm -hmm. thing, except that some some of that is baked in and some of it is actively experienced. Yeah. Did I get it? And, yeah. and so as things become actively experienced, they get closer to being baked in. Right. The more you do things, the more they fall into the just into are or yeah. just. Yeah. But there is no just is. There isn't. But we but Everything we think that is there theory. is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's something that like people who who don't like theory, like people who do archaeology, are like, oh, I don't do theory. It's like, well, too bad because you are. And no, I just, think it's just that those people had theory poorly explained. And to that's, them. And so that's the what problem. you've just done is the opposite of that. <laughs> So and so that's the because did that a public like, service because what what theory what theory does is like what the point of good theory is is to help us figure out that we are not what is that it's called the tyranny of the subject is this idea hmm. that um, the subject object relationship is like where I I have. But I am like exerting my will and expressing my my will at objects, but perhaps I too am an object. And so that's that's where things around like agency and, and stuff. And so there have been studies like on like and, and sort of um, explorations of looking at like the agency of uh, firearms or the agency of um, explosive devices that have on the people who are using or planting as well as the, the victims. And so you start to think about the agency of objects. We're all in it. It's all, it's all in that cake. Um, so <laughs> before we take a break and dig into the, like the, like 
archaeological case studies of this episode. Um, writing this script has reminded me of something that happened in an art history seminar that I was in, and I am still out here dying on this hill. So yes, let's um, air that laundry for <laughs> this has the thousands of people that listen like to this podcast. 11 years ago. Um, so something that happened in an art history seminar um, so many years ago, my professor asked us, we were talking about ritual. My professor asked us, what is something that we do today that constitutes ritual? And I don't remember what anybody else said. <laughs> but what I remember is what I said, because everybody told me that I was wrong and that's not ritual because it's actually real. And I said, locking your front door at night is a ritual. So like when you if someone twist, really wanted to get into your house, yes, they wouldn't like go it a gives door. you because twist and like and I was trying to say like the, the one in the handle. So um, I don't know what your doorknobs are oh, like. The where little, you are. the little like guy. Even the little one. I think the whole like locking the whole thing is a ritual. Mm -hmm. But but especially like the small one, like locking your door at night, because it gives you the sense that you are safe at a sort of the performance of safety. It's a thing that ends your night or means that you are in and you're not outside anymore. And, and also if someone were to, wanted to break into your home or do you harm, like statistically the people most likely to do you harm are already inside that, that lock on the same side of the locked door as you are. But like beyond that, like they can get in. They can get. And so I said, this is ritual. And like, this is the relationship that we have with the doorknob and the house and the concept of the home. And everyone's like, and, and property and safety. Yeah. And, yeah. and like people in my class were like, but, but no, you just, you just lock your door to keep people out. And I'm just like, and so that's <laughs> maybe you live in an impenetrable bunker, but. And so I, know? I still think about this occasionally because I am petty. But also, okay. I think about this because, and it, it's something that stuck with me also because thinking about ritual is something that people that aren't us do. Like you believe in something supernatural or you believe in that you, you're, uh, you're superstitious or it's like fetish or something. But like, it's really just the relationship that you have with your, your doxa in your, in your group and, and sort of what the expectation is. Um, hmm. And so let's take a quick break. Now that I've gotten that off my chest <laughs> and we can let that, let that theory settle in. Um, and then we'll come back for a trip to some ritual spaces with Anna. That's my other podcast, ritual spaces with Anna. It's like a home <laughs> and garden show. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. So where does ritual thinking come from? It's not entirely clear when along the human timeline we see the first evidence for ritual because so much of that aspect of life is ephemeral. And the farther back in time we go, the less material evidence there is to work with. But we can look at cognition, social evolution, and the general trajectory of the evolution of our big human brains and identify some of the markers for our capacity to think abstractly, which arguably thinking about thinking, thinking about ritual is. So this is going to be a short meander through some background, but I promise we're going somewhere. I'm going to quote now from a Sapiens article by Augustine Fuentes. 
Quote, Our two-million-year journey to complex religions, political philosophies, and technologies essentially follows a three-step path, from imagination to meaning-making to belief systems. To trace that path, we must go back to where it started. Rocks. Imagine an early hominin preparing the evening meal. She knows stones can be hit and flaked to form sharper utensils that cut and chop. She also knows the stone tools her ancestors made don't do a particularly great job. They take a long time to hack raw meat off a carcass, to smash and grind the roots the community has dug up, and to crack open bones and scoop out the delicious marrow. One day, she looks at her brethren laboring to create simple, one-sided flaked stone tools. She sees, in her mind's eye, flakes being removed from both sides, further sharpening the edges and balancing the shape. She creates a mental representation of a possibility, and she makes it her reality. She and her descendants experiment with more extensive reshaping of stones, creating, for example, a Shulian hand axis. They begin to predict flaking patterns. They conceive of more diverse instruments for slicing roots and raw meat and carving bone and wood. They translate private musings and imaginings into communal realities. When they make a discovery, they teach one another, speeding up the invention process and expanding the possibilities of their efforts. End quote. So there are two key elements here that are a through line. First, abstract thought. The ability to imagine something that is not present in the physical world. As you might imagine, it's not possible to pin this down exactly in the timeline of human evolution. There are no fossils of thought bubbles, sadly. For that matter, humans are not the only animals that seem to be able to think abstractly or use forethought and planning to solve problems. Crows, monkeys, and apes, and probably other animals too, but I'm not an expert in that, All of those animals can create tools to solve problems that are newly presented to them, indicating the ability to imagine a solution and then make it happen in real life. Do crows have a rich and fulfilling spiritual life? No idea. Well, now I'm going to be thinking about that. (laughs) Crow religion? You don't have to think about that. Okay. That's That's something you absolutely do not have to think about. I absolve you of thinking about that. The second key element here is teachability, and with that, a shared system of communication and the potential for developing a shared sense of meaning for different people, places, things, and times. And all of this is tied to the ways our brains evolved and which parts of our brains changed. So a little bit more from that Sapiens article, quote, Over the course of evolution, hominins grew increasingly dynamic neural pathways that allowed them to become even more responsive to their environment. During this time period, Homo's brains reached their modern size. But their brains didn't uniformly enlarge. Parts of the frontal lobes, which play critical roles in emotional, social, motivational, and perceptual processes, as well as decision-making, attention, and working memory, expanded and elaborated at an increased rate. You see this especially after about 600,000 years ago. Hmm. Another brain organ that ballooned was the cerebellum. Over the course of hominin history, our lineage added approximately 16 billion more cerebellar neurons than would be expected for our brain size. This ancient brain organ is involved with social sensory motor skills, imitation, and complex sequences of behavior. Also, in preparing okay, this... Uh, yes, uh, yes. Well, 16 billion more. How many were mm-hmm. there before? I think it was if you were plotting a trajectory of brain development... And you were to model the expected rate of growth. Yeah. What you see that actually plots out in in brain size doesn't match what the model would predict. And so the equivalent, the the excess brain development corresponds to about 16 billion more neurons than were expected or would be predicted. Oh, okay. So it's okay. Yeah. Because it's just like, is that a lot? Because we're just... I have no idea what that looks like in terms of actual brain mass. I didn't think to look that up, but now that's, that is interesting. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I I can tell you that between 600,000 years ago and sort of anatomically modern humans, we gained about 300 cubic centimeters of brain. Eh, give or take. How much is that? Uh, about 16 billion neurons, maybe? This is, this is I don't do brain math. This, this is, oh my God. It's a lot. <laughs> it's really cool. Just wait. I'm not even done. Oh, great. I'm not even done astonishing you yet. I wouldn't um, say I'm being astonished right now. <laughs> oh, 
No. Um, All right. Befuddled. Little for that. <laughs> Mildly interested, I hope. Is that? I mean, that goes without saying. Okay, great. Also, in preparing this section, I looked at an article in Science Advances that has a very science-y tra- like, title that I didn't copy. But it translates basically to, hey, how'd our brains get so round? Because compared to round? globular is the, the word that most articles will use. But the Homo sapiens brain shape in comparison to a lot of other archaic hominins, very round. Round, wrinkly brains. Hmm. So these structural changes and that the cerebellum is up here. It's up in the, the frontal part. So hence that's, we've got a I tall, you were just telling where the forehead. brain was. I was like, I know that's where your brain is, bud. Where that's that where is, you keep yeah. your brain. Yeah, no, but, but the growth that we experienced in the cerebellum helped make our brain more spherical rather than. So these structural changes helped the genus Homo generate more effective and expansive mental representations. What emerged was a distinctively human imagination, the capacity that allows us to create and shape our futures. It also gave rise to the next step in the evolution of belief, which is meaning making. End quote. But our big globular Homo sapiens brains aren't the only brains that could conceive of meaning beyond immediate life experiences. So... Here we go. It shouldn't surprise anyone who's listened to more than 10 minutes of this show or who has ever been in a room with me that I'm leading us down the Neanderthal garden path. The garden? The garden. Well, no, (laughs) no evidence of that, but I like to think that they might have. So Neanderthals, and this is the reason I bring this up, they have quite a different cranial shape than we do. So while we have high, flat foreheads and big globe brains, Neanderthals have brain junk in their brain trunk, which is to say that they have a very low forehead, but an elongated rear or occipital skull shape. So their brains were around the same size as ours, actually a little bigger, but organized differently with more gray matter in the rear portions of the brain. So how did that affect their cognition? We're not exactly sure, but there's every reason to think from material evidence that Neanderthals had the ability to think of spaces and objects as sacred or culturally meaningful. For one thing, we know that Neanderthals made many different types of tools of varying complexity. They would need the ability to transmit that information and to imagine a desired outcome when making a tool and make that imagined sequence of events happen in real life. We know that Neanderthals lived in social groups, so there is potential for shared culture. And in fact, we know that there's shared culture because of evidence for self-adornment with things like shell beads and ochre, and maybe even some Neanderthal cave art at the site of La La Pasiega in Spain, although there is debate about that. But maybe the most Debate that it's art or debate that Neanderthals did it? Both. Like, does this represent well, I guess some kind of decider. symbolic representation or uh, also the dates are a little. Okay. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a shame that the, the art decider Twitter account is no longer out there. Cause you could have been like, is this art? Is this art? Uh, if you like hash marks, La Pasiega cave is for you. But maybe the most compelling evidence for Neanderthals experiencing a world beyond the simple reality of existence is the incredible sight of Brunekel. Oh, my dad just texted me the Wikipedia entry for the cerebellum. Did I get it wrong, dad? What'd I do? It's a major part of the hindbrain of all vertebrates. Oh, I did it wrong. It's in the back of the brain. Not a brain doctor. All right. Thanks, dad. (laughs) Maybe the most compelling evidence for Neanderthals experiencing a world Beyond the simple reality of existence is the incredible sight of Brunekel Cave in the Aveyron Valley in southern France. So I'm pulling here variously from a 2016 article by Ed Young in The Atlantic, some parts of Kindred by past dirt guest Rebecca Rag Sykes, and the original research publication in Nature uh, of the site, the publication of Archaeology of the Site of Brunekel. So this is quoting from the Ed Young Atlantic article. Quote, Some 336 meters into the cave, there is a vast chamber where several stalagmites had been deliberately broken into around 400 pieces. Most of these had been arranged into two rings, a large one between four and seven meters across, so a wobbly ring, I guess, and a smaller one just two meters wide. Other stalagmite chunks had been propped up against these donuts. Yet others had been stacked into four piles. Traces of fire were everywhere, and there was a mass of burnt bones. These weren't natural formations, and they weren't the work of bears. They were built by people. That was an option? 
Well, what the, what I didn't include was that this was a site where cave bears definitely lived. So of the beings living in this cave, you got bears and you got people. It's probably not the bears was the, the line of logic there. So bears, not really an option. No, although they do, cave bears dig little cave bear nests and you can still see those in ancient caves and they sharpen their claws by going down the wall of the cave and they leave claw marks. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they, they altered their space, just not like this. Archaeology, so continuing that quote, archaeologist Francois Rousseau used carbon-14 dating to determine that a burnt bare bone found within the chamber was 47,600 years old, which meant that the stalagmite rings were older than any known cave painting. It also meant that they couldn't have been the work of Homo sapiens. Our species wasn't yet present in this part of Europe. The people who built these structures were Neanderthals, end quote. And so as to the, the burning um, being an effect of, of you know, people doing it. Um, it was deep into the cave. So remember, it's more than 300 meters into the cave. Even if a wildfire had come by, which there would be lightning strike fires in the area, it wouldn't travel 300 meters into the cave. So having burned bones there meant that people were lighting fires or for some reason bringing burned bones into that space. Hmm. So, so here's uh, another quote from the Nature article and a point to, to keep in mind. Quote, the Neanderthal's presence at 336 meters from the entrance of the cave indicates that humans from this period had already mastered the underground environment, which can be considered a major step in human modernity, end quote. So not only had Neanderthals mastered the underground environment or learned that they could bring fire into underground spaces to light their way and figured out how to navigate those spaces, but it's clear that these dark massive underground spaces meant something to them. And it meant something for a long time. So that burnt bare bone, remember that dated to 47,600 years old? Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. It's I old, do. right? That's yeah. not the only chronological data. Archaeologists dated the stalagmites too. So here comes another but quote. Yes. Are you going to tell me how you can date a stalagmite? Sure am. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's an app called Caver. Um, uh, yep. Uh, <laughs> so here's another quote from The Atlantic. In 2013, the research team got permission to study the site and crawled into it themselves. One of the researchers said, I'm not very big and I had to put one arm before me and one behind me to get through. Oh. It's kind of magical, even without the structures. And end quote. Yeah, that's another thing. This is a space that you have to work to get into and travel through a passage, which I'm sure is part of its significance. I have no evidence to back that up, but probably not for me. Continuing the quote, after drilling into the stalagmites and pulling out cylinders of rock, the team could see an obvious transition between two layers. On one side were old minerals that were part of the original stalagmites. On the other were newer layers that had been laid down after the fragments were broken off by the cave's former users. So this is a cave environment where water is filtering down and you get continual uh, mineral deposits over time. So by measuring uranium levels on either side of the divide, the team could accurately tell when each stalagmite had been snapped off for construction. So the date was 176,500 years ago, give or take a few millennia, end quote. So if we take that as our earliest date, around 176,500 years ago, when the ring structures were first built, some... Quick math tells us that Neanderthals were still using Brunichel for something more than 128,000 years later. Was the site in use that whole time? Did groups travel there for gatherings, for some sort of social or ritual event? You don't know. Is this suggesting that it's a ritual that lasted? Not the, like, the actually listed, but this was something that was part of Neanderthal culture for 128,000 years. No, I don't think it's I don't think it's making that claim. I think that what they're saying is this site for whatever reason was meaningful to groups of people in the area. And the, the meaning, meaning may have be been different. different. Okay. Yeah. It's not a huge cultural group all necessarily sharing the same culture format and ritual, but yeah. it's the space itself is known as a important, sacred, meaningful space for a really long time. And, and people are coming back over, okay. over that time. They're not, it's not necessarily clear that they're coming back every year or every, however many years it's interspersed, but 
yeah, it's an important site. Cause that, so another wild. Hmm? Well, that's just it's just hard, and I guess it's just because we don't really have examples that that we know of of sort of having a hundred and twenty eight thousand years of memory. No, like there's true. memory, like there's evidence for memory that la- that has extended, you know, maybe sixty thousand years. Yeah, like the, the Aboriginal Australian. Yeah, like so there are. Yeah, that that's something where you you are in like the order of like tens of thousands of years, but that that still feels very different from like enough time for you to have like evolved. Well, sure. I mean, maybe, you know, it fell out of use and then was rediscovered at some point, you know, I mean, people are, and maybe just finding a place that had fallen out of use would be significant itself. Yeah. Walking in and seeing like here before. Yeah. Well, also there's a big cave chamber and then a little passage. And so it's possible that people knew about the larger cave just because it was there on the landscape and you could, live in it and so maybe people would come by not knowing about the passage and the the sacred space which i'm deciding to call it that the the circles the stalagmite circles um you know and maybe they found that later and that became important to them for that reason but i don't have any sense of that progression right yeah how could you how could one not you well me either i'm not accusing you of anything it's okay go on another another wild thing about the brunekel circles we don't actually really know how they were made Uh, we do know that it probably wasn't just one single weirdo with a passion project another quote from the atlantic most likely there was a team and a technically skilled one at that they broke rocks deliberately and arranged them precisely they used fire too more than 120 fragments of the stalagmites have red and black streaks that aren't found elsewhere in the chamber or in the cave beyond. They were the result of deliberately applied heat at intensities strong enough to occasionally crack the rock. The Neanderthal group responsible for these constructions had a level of social organization that was more complex than previously thought. And that last line is from the team's report. End quote. So they used fire as a tool to essentially um, heat shock the stalagmites so that they could break them. Oh. This is a very deliberate action that's happening. Oh. Yeah. So, so presumably someone was sort of like managing this. They, I don't know. They must have at least planned it out beforehand. We don't know. I don't know anything. So Maybe, what you don't we, need a manager, Anna. Well, you no, but like someone to sort How of. How could you? You made me punch my microphone. I got to Yeah. So what we homo sapiens construe as meaningful may have nothing to do with what was meaningful for Neanderthals. There is no way we can know that. But sites like Brunekel show us that Neanderthal life and their experiences extended beyond everyday functionality. In this space, they worked to create something that held meaning across generations and maybe millennia. But again... We don't know. And if you'd like to learn more about Brunekel and see pictures of it and to get a much more in-depth description, I highly recommend the book Kindred, written by guest of the show, Rebecca Rag Sykes, specifically the chapter Beautiful Things, in which she discusses mm-hmm. Brunekel. So wow. we're going to take one more quick ad break, and then we'll take our rituals somewhere else. <laughs> get out of here. Uh, take your rituals well, with you. God, let's hope that the ancient aliens folks don't get a hold of... Bernicale Cave, really? Someone. Someone was. No. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. We're back, and we're jumping forward in time. 
way forward in time to about 1500 BCE, which is like basically yesterday when we're thinking about what we were just talking about. 128,000 years of Neanderthals partying in a cave. Yeah. Yeah. So the dates here are quite wobbly um, for reasons that we will get into, Um, but we are... We're in 1500 BCE-ish in the ancient Greek city of Athens, which is still there. But this was, again, 1500 BCE. Um, And its environs. So it's harvest time, which is around the end of September for us time travelers. So we didn't go too far back in in time. A couple weeks. (laughs) Um, And we're here to observe the Eleusinian mysteries, which are mysterious. So we know a reasonable amount about the social context and basic elements of these ritual observances, we assume, Um, but we don't know a whole lot about the details of what initiates actually did during the rituals, which like is kind of important. Is a big part. Yeah. So you might think that's surprising, given how much we know about other aspects of life in ancient Athens. Um, It was. Uh, a super chatty place. You couldn't throw a rock without hitting a poet, a playwright, a critic, or social commentator. Maybe you'd want to. (laughs) So we have piles of writing from Athens from the time when we know the Eleusinian mysteries were happening. And yet the mysteries remain mysterious. A big part of this is probably that the penalty for talking about the Eleusinian mysteries was death. Reportedly, the poet Aeschylus was tr- was tried for blabbing about the mysteries in his the mysteries in his plays, but was found innocent. That man did not blab. Um, then again, this is the same guy that reportedly was killed by a tortoise that fell from the sky when it was dropped by an eagle. So, like, he had a lot going on. So. <laughs> he had other things to worry about. <laughs> so, what do we know about the Eleusinian mysteries? We know why they happened. A commemoration of the story of the abduction of Persephone by Hades, as written in the Homeric hymn to Demeter. Hades, god of the underworld, fell in love with Persephone, the only daughter of Demeter, who was goddess of fertility and the harvest. So dealing with his feelings in a totally normal, a completely normal way, Hades abducted Persephone and brought her down to the underworld to live with him as his queen. So men will literally abduct women and take them to the underworld to be their queen rather than go to therapy. It's my Twitter joke for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so Demeter, realizing her beloved daughter was missing and in fact had been abducted, uh, searched madly for her, ignoring all her goddess duties in her despair. Demeter's grief caused severe drought and famine and the plaintive prayers of the starving people got Zeus's attention. So he came to Demeter to get her to fix the harvest and she pleaded with him to get her daughter back. Zeus orders, ordered Hades to return Persephone to her mother, which he reluctantly did, but there was a catch. In order for Persephone to completely escape the underworld, she wasn't allowed to eat or drink anything while there. But Hades tricked her into eating six pomegranate seeds. The deal was, Persephone could leave and be with her mother for six months out of the year, but for those six seeds, she had to return to Hades' domain for the other six months. During the months when Persephone was with her mother, the earth was fruitful and the sun shone, so spring and summer. But when she went below, things became dismal, fall and winter. Um, In the southern hemisphere. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Hello to our Antipodean friends. (laughs) Um, The Eleusinian mysteries taking place at the turn from summer to fall commemorate Persephone's descent into and return from Hades' kingdom. This move from light to dark, from life to death, is represented in a very real way in the rituals because the mysteries took place in a large cave beneath the Acropolis, called the Plutonian, roughly Pluto's place. Shea Pluto. Um, Shea Pluto. and, And Pluto is Hades. So we also know who could participate in the cult of Demeter. The requirements were simple. Initiates had to be able to understand Greek. Yes. Importantly, they did not have to be Greek, only to understand the language in which the rituals were spoken, which seems fair enough. Members also had to be free of any blood on their hands, 
no homicides allowed. Other than that, the cult was very egalitarian. Any social class, any gender, and most ages could participate. Um, not sure if there was an age cutoff, but like babies probably didn't participate. Probably not babies. Yeah. Babies don't understand Greek. That's true. Can't let babies in. So. But I could join. Yes. So. Yep. What did the rituals look like? For listeners who want to take a much deeper dive into the particulars of the event, we'll link an article from the Oxford Classical Dictionary that is very, very thorough. Uh, too <laughs> thorough for us here so today because we've only got an hour and I already spent a lot of time talking about theory. So I will sketch the basic details out. Here is what we know. Uh, but I am going to quote from a 2013 essay by Kiki Karaglu from the Metropolitan Museum of Art's website. Quote, <laughs> During the Great Eleusinia, the public aspect of which culminated in the grand procession from the center of Athens to Eleusis along the Sacred Way, the actions and experiences of the initiates mirrored those of Persephone and Demeter in the sacred drama. So the drama mysticon. In the early sixth see, I know Greek. In oh, the I early sixth Greek. <laughs> In the early 6th century BCE, the queen of the underworld, persona of Kore, was introduced and a nocturnal initiation rite called katabasis was added to the festival. A simulated descent to Hades and ritual search for Persephone. Where is she? Oh. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's like finding the afikomen. What? The thing in Passover where you hide the matzah and then the kids go look for it. Oh, it's like that's that, fun. with a lady. Yeah. Gosh. Seems like the stakes might be higher. Um, <laughs> um, before the entrance to the central hall of the sanctuary where the secret rites were performed, priestly personnel holding torches met up with the initiates, who until then were wandering in the dark. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yeah, it sounds great. But it also sounds very emotional because you're just like in the well, dark. that's the point. This yeah, is the like, point. Yeah, Ritual I, is creating these feelings. I know. The sacred. At, Durkheim. Yes. At all. Yes. Yep. At the Eleusinian Mysteries, the tension between public and private, conspicuous and secret, was inherent in the double nature of the cult. Unlike city-state religion, participation was restricted to individuals who chose to be initiated, to become mystai. At the same time, it was far more inclusive, being open not only to Athenian male citizens, who... Arguably, That's the city-state religion, the best time of all in Athens, yeah. but to yeah. non-Athenians and also women and slaves. End quote. Mm -hmm. So initiates would prepare for the ritual by fasting and then drinking only kukion, which is a drink that was most likely made from water, barley, and naturally occurring substances. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> so, um, so it sounds like it could have been fermented. Um, it could have been there. I've read the theory that it was um, ergot. Ergot. Yeah. Yep. And that so it was barley that's gone a bit off. Yeah. We, which would make wandering around in the dark certainly a very meaningful experience, I'm sure. Yeah. And so, according to the Iliad, Kukion consists of barley, wine, and grated goat's cheese, which is so gross. <laughs> so, uh, maybe, though? Maybe. I mean, I maybe maybe you blend it. Maybe it's like a smoothie. It's Look, maybe read on, read on. Okay, so whether somebody somebody with a blog made it, um, and they said it was pretty good. So um, so the mixture is cooked a little bit, which probably helps. So it's it's more like um, it's more like a like savory a, kind of brothy, winey, like a wine situation. carbonara, like a wine fondue. <laughs> okay, great. Did Sounds that help? Great. Is that good? Doesn't really sound like something that I want to consume and then run around in the dark for a few hours. But I don't know. Um, Might make you feel some kind of a way. I would prefer the psychedelic, but again, <laughs> fair, sure, not my you. business. No. So, uh, from a 2019 piece in the New York Times, uh, written by Professor of Philosophy Simon Critchley, quote: "Initiates." Up to 3,000 at a time. Could you just imagine 3,000 so people, people tripping, like literally and figuratively in the dark? Oh, just also tripping. Amazing. Yeah. So, 
initiates up to 3,000 at a time for the mysteries, their stomachs empty apart from the ritual drink of Kukyan, would have moved slowly through the long entrance halls of the sanctuary before looking up to their right and seeing a large cave beneath the Acropolis. Here was the entrance to Hades. At this point, a remarkable thing would happen. To the side of the Plutonion is a fake well, cylindrical and extending down into the darkness. It even has little steps cut into the rock. It is out of this shaft that someone playing the role of Persephone, presumably a priestess, would have emerged before the crowd of initiates. She would have walked a few steps from the mouth of the well to a broad, round hole in the wall of the cave. Her face and upper body would have been visible, peeping out to the crowd. At the core of the ritual is the reenactment of the return of Persephone from Hades. As the mysteries took place at night, the only light was cast from torches. Their dramatic effect of ritual is not hard to imagine. Indeed, the entire layout of Eleusis is extremely theatrical with exquisite scenography. It is like moving through a series of stages in all senses of the word. The site is a series of immersive performance spaces where the atmosphere of anticipation relentlessly builds. Clearly, the Eleusinian priests, called hierophants, taken from only two local families, knew how to build tension and induce in the initiates a feeling of awe. And anyone who does not feel a little awe at Eleusis is missing something. From the cave, the initiates and the hierophants, carrying a coffin filled with sacred objects, but we don't know what they were, ascended nope. once again, moving toward the Telesterion, the most important edifice at Eleusis, where the central drama of the mysteries took place. It is a huge space which had a forest of 42 high columns supporting a sumptuous coffered ceiling. It could host thousands of initiates sitting on steps, eight rows of which survive, carved directly into the mountain rock. It is just like a theater. In the center of the hall stood a smaller rectangular building called the Anactoron, built very precisely over a more ancient site, which goes back to the Mycenaean Bronze Age. It was the Holy of Holies, the place where the sacred objects of Demeter were placed. The only people permitted to enter were the Hierophants. From here, the story is shrouded in secrecy, and we have no idea what happened, end quote. Which I always liked. I like, I like that. I like people keeping secrets from us, the like nosy sure. people that won't get it in the future. Yeah. We are the the Frodo meme. Keep our <laughs> secrets. Um, yeah, and so after all that, we seem to know quite a lot and yet almost nothing about these mysterious rituals, which is more or less what we can say about this whole topic. We can only know what we ourselves can experience. We can try through exploring archaeological sites and materials and historical texts and philosophies to recreate some aspects of what the experience of rituals in another time or place might have been like, but some of it will always be beyond our grasp. But we can understand the social context of ritual and what ritual does for a community. Ritual is a set of shared practices, shared senses of what is sacred, protected, and important. These things, the habitus, praxis, and doxa of our lives are powerful, and they're more than a little bit responsible for the way we see the world, whether we realize that or not. And with that, listeners and viewers, we will wrap up the episode, perhaps leaving you still feeling a bit baffled, a bit befuddled. A bit bemused, but hopefully enriched. Thank you so much to everyone who was able to join us for the live show. A version yeah. of this will be edited and released on the on the made feed. Oh no, typo. Made on <laughs> okay. On I get two mistakes per episode and I beefed the brain thing, <laughs> cerebellum's at the back, and I spelled main wrong. That's In a couple my of two. Weeks. But we're so happy folks could join us behind the curtain. Uh, so we hope to do more of these in the future. So if you missed this one, stay tuned. Yep. And in the meantime, we will be back in your ears soon with more content, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, or wherever else you like to listen. You can also find us on social media, where we post stories about archaeology and anthropology, along with other things that tickle our fancy on facebook you can find us as the dirt podcast on twitter we're at dirt podcast and on instagram we're at the dirt pod and all of that and everything else we do like merch our patreon where our beautiful supporters help us make this happen resources for educators and more that's all over at our website thedirtpod.com thanks for listening everybody we love you bye, bye.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.